0: So it's about halfway through chief year now, and I'm so excited to be an MFM, but I'm already forgetting how to do gynecology.
1: Oh my gosh, Nick. You can't forget how to do gynecology because you haven't been GYN clinic chief yet.
0: I know, but still, like, how am I going to keep track of all of these things? Like, you know, when do I get that ultrasound or what's the endometrial thickness that I need to be aware of? Like, I'm overwhelmed.
1: Luckily for you, the OBG Project has up-to-date guidelines for all of these things that you can make sure you have on your own personal bookshelf with your subscription of OBG First that I know you got for free because you're a fourth-year resident. Um, So you can go ahead and continue to be up-to-date on all of those things if you're up-to-date on all your readings on the OBG Project.
0: Phew. All right. Well, I'll be able to check that out, and you can check it out too. Head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the link in the sidebar, and you too can get OBG First for absolutely free as a chief resident.
1: Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is...
0: Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee.
1: Today we have back with us Dr. Jennifer Ding, who is a third-year OBGYN resident here with us at Brown, and she's going to be talking to us today about ultrasound in pregnancy. Thanks for having me back, guys. Very excited.
0: Yeah. Thanks for coming back, Jennifer. Um, what are our learning objectives for today?
1: So our
2: learning objectives today, we're going to be starting by talking about different types of ultrasounds and their accepted nomenclature, and then we're going to be spending most of our time talking about common indications for OB ultrasounds by trimester, and then we'll end by talking a little bit about the use of ultrasound in detecting structural anomalies and aneuploidy screening, and a few other fun miscellaneous things at the end.
1: So talk to us a little bit about ultrasound nomenclature and why we do ultrasound, I guess. Absolutely. I think all three of
2: us are ultrasound nerds, and ultrasounds are just a really fun way to engage and educate your patient, and it helps them bond with their pregnancies by being able to see things live, Um, and we get to be mini radiologists for a half hour at a time. So talking about nomenclature, there's a standardized set of nomenclature that basically obstetricians and radiologists have agreed upon. And first, we'll talk a little bit about what a limited ultrasound is. So these are really quick ultrasounds that have a specific purpose. Sometimes it's to check for presentation and labor or viability in the first trimester um, placental location. And the second trimester, if someone comes in with some vaginal bleeding, you can use a limited ultrasound to assess for amniotic fluid volume as well as cervical length. Next is a standard ultrasound or what we can think of as a level one ultrasound. And so in a standard ultrasound, you'd want to document the fetal presentation and number. As well as the amniotic fluid volume. For amniotic fluid volume, there's two different ways to measure. There's the amniotic fluid index or the deepest vertical pocket. And basically, for this, you just want the probe to be along the cephalocodate axis of mom, perpendicular to the floor. And you just want to make sure that there are no fetal parts or cord floating in the segment that you're measuring. Interestingly enough, at our institution, we've sort of shifted away from AFIs and towards DVPs, uh, at least this especially for assessing amniotic volume in the third trimester. And studies have shown that using the deepest vertical pocket compared to amniotic fluid index has led to less interventions for the diagnosis of oligohydroamnios without impacting perinatal outcomes. Other things that are included in the standard ultrasound are obviously the assessment of fetal heart rate, and this is when sometimes you might pick up on uh, bradycardia, tachycardia, some kind of arrhythmia, PACs, things like that. And then you want to look at the placenta. So things that are important about the placenta are where is it? Is it near the cervix, overlying the cervix? If it's within two centimeters of the os, that would be defined as a low-lying placenta. And The terminology, marginal placenta, partial placenta previa, we're no longer using. If a placenta is over the os or previa, or if it's a low-lying placenta, the thought is that you want to repeat ultrasounds usually every few weeks until 32 weeks because many of them do tend to resolve. There was a retrospective study at UNC where they looked at 366 cases of previa diagnosed after 14 weeks, and actually 84% of complete previas and 98% of marginal previas did resolve by the delivery date. If someone has had multiple C-sections and have a placenta previa, that's when we get suspicious about potential abnormal placentation or placenta accretus spectrum. This is a common CREOG test question and the way that I tend to remember the number of C-sections and the risk of possible accreta is if someone's had one prior C-section, it's about a 5% risk of having an accreta, two prior C-sections, 10%, three prior C-sections, 40%, and four prior C-sections, 60%, so about five, 10, 40, and 60. And finally, on the standard ultrasound, You can perform fetal biometry to come up with an estimated fetal weight as well as an anatomic survey to look at the different parts of the fetus and finally you can also look at the cervix and anexa when it's possible a lot of times the anexa are sort of hidden by the fetal parts and finally we have specialized ultrasounds or level 2 ultrasounds and these are typically done when there's a concern for a possible anomaly and so that might be the result of an abnormal aneuploidy screen Uh, either a personal or family history of congenital heart disease, medication exposure, teratogenicity, or if something just was noted on a standard ultrasound and you might want to order a specialized ultrasound or a level 2 ultrasound to see a fetal part better. And then sometimes if there is a pregnancy complicated by morbid obesity, sometimes it's just easier to go straight to a level 2 ultrasound because sometimes it might be harder to see certain anatomic structures. And finally, on a specialized ultrasound, this is when you would be able to perform fetal Doppler ultrasonography, a fetal echo, and then a biophysical profile to assess for a different fetal status.
0: Phenomenal! That's a lot of different types of ultrasounds, Jennifer. So again, we had the limited, the standard, and the specialized ultrasound. I guess kind of moving from there in terms of like what different ultrasounds are. What are some different indications for ultrasound I guess starting with the first trimester why might we need an ultrasound?
2: So if someone presents in pregnancy early you want to do a first trimester ultrasound, ideally before 14 weeks, and this can give you a lot of information about the status of the pregnancy. In general, in the first trimester, transvaginal ultrasounds are more helpful than transabdominal ultrasounds, and you can assess the uterus, the cervix, and the anexa, and this can tell you information about the fetal number, the fetal viability, the dating based on the crown rump length, as well as the location of the placenta. In the first trimester, depending on the stages of embryology, you'd see the gestational sac, yolk sac, and cron-rump length. The crun rump length is the most accurate way to date a pregnancy, especially before 14 weeks. This is a good time, again, to review the high-yield question of different ways of diagnosing a failed IUP. This is a question that comes up a lot, and the four criteria are a mean sac diameter equal to or greater than 25 millimeters without an embryo a crown rump length equal or greater than seven millimeters without a heart rate, an embryo without a heart rate 14 days after a gestational sac is seen, or an embryo without a heartbeat 11 days after a gestational sac and yolk sac are seen. In the first trimester, this is when you might also diagnose a multifetal gestation, and the earlier that a multifetal gestation with their amnionicity and chorionicity are determined, the better because it can be harder to interpret later on in pregnancy. In a monochorionic gestation, you might see a T-sign, whereas in a dichorionic gestation, you might see a lambda or a twin peak sign. And then finally, an important part of aneuploidy screening is the nuchal translucency, which can be done before 14 weeks. And abnormal nuchal translucency can be associated with chromosomal anomalies, vascular or lymphatic anomalies, genetic abnormalities.
1: What about the second trimester ultrasound, Jennifer? What are we normally looking for when we're ultrasounding in the second try?
2: In the second trimester the anatomy ultrasound is really important in terms of reviewing all the different parts of the fetus and here the transabdominal ultrasound is going to be our workhorse typically this is done between 18 to 22 weeks and sooner if a patient might have more difficult maternal characteristics for visualization such as obesity if this is the patient's first ultrasound in their pregnancy it might be helpful to do biometry instead of crown rump length for dating purposes This is a great time to look at the cervix, placenta, and fetal anatomy. In terms of fetal anatomy, in broad strokes, you'd want to look at the head, face, and neck. And there are several more specific structures we'll list on the website. The chest, where you would want to take a good look at the fetal heart, including a four-chamber view and both the right and left ventricular outflow. In the abdomen, you'd want to look at things like the stomach, kidneys, bladder, and the GU system in particular all parts of the fetal spine, the fetal extremities, as well as the fetal sex, which is helpful in terms of multiple gestations. If this anatomy ultrasound is limited based on fetal position or maternal characteristics, sometimes a short interval follow-up ultrasound can therefore complete your anatomy ultrasound.
0: And I guess, Jennifer, that brings us now to the third trimester of when we might be considering when or if to do ultrasound.
2: The third trimester ultrasound is typically a growth ultrasound that's ordered for different indications, most commonly being multiple gestation, fetal growth restriction, the pregnancy-induced hypertension spectrum, gestational diabetes. Growth ultrasounds are ordered every three to four weeks, and we know that ultrasound in the third trimester tends to be the most inaccurate in terms of estimating fetal weight about 20% plus or minus in the third trimester. The most commonly used Estimation of estimated fetal weight is the Hadlock formula, which is calculated based on the head circumference, the bipyramidal diameter, the abdominal circumference, and the femur length. So we'll go over those four criteria really quickly because they can be very helpful for doing your own bedside growth ultrasound. For the bipyramidal diameter, the BPD, what you want is a plane that includes the thalami and the CSP. The thalami are what I think of as small butterflies, and the CSP is a small rhomboid box that's more in the posterior. And you really don't want any cerebellum in this picture because you're then a little bit more oblique than where you want. And once you have this picture, you'd want to measure from the outer edge of the proximal skull to the inner edge of the distal skull. For the head circumference, you just keep the same picture. And in this case, you're measuring the circumference, the outer perimeter of the calvarium all the way around. And then next is the femur length. This I think is actually the easiest of all four to measure and you're basically measuring the osseous bone. So not the cartilage that would be on either side. And finally, the umbilical circumference, the picture that you would want includes the umbilical vein, the portal sinus and the fetal stomach. And To me, the umbilical vein sort of looks like a little boomerang that's flying away from the stomach, and at this point, the spine would also be in your view. Growth ultrasounds can diagnose fetal growth restriction, which is less than the 10th percentile estimated fetal weight for that gestational age, or severe fetal growth restriction, less than the 5th percentile. If there's severe fetal growth restriction, then it would prompt you to consider doing umbilical artery Doppler measurements if you're at a center where that is a capability. Similarly, if a fetus is greater than 90th percentile, that might be suggestive of fetal macrosomia. And for multifetal gestation, if the EFW has a greater than 20% discordance, that may prompt you to do further fetal testing. The third trimester ultrasound can also be a great way to estimate amniotic fluid volume, which we talked a little bit about earlier. And in this specific case, You might diagnose new oligohydramnese or
1: polyhydramnese, both of which are associated with different maternal and fetal conditions. Thanks for that review, Jen. Um, I think you know you already alluded to this when you talked about estimated fetal weight in the third trimester. But I think one thing that's difficult for our patients to understand and even for us to grasp is really how good is ultrasound and how much information can ultrasound really tell us? So how would you counsel your patients or tell them um, the limits of ultrasound, for example?
2: Absolutely. I think with improving technology, we're getting better and better at seeing different fetal views, especially now with 3D ultrasonography. But something that we've learned from our attendings is it's really great to couch sharing the results of an ultrasound with a patient because even with a completely normal ultrasound, that might be helpful and reassuring, but it can never 100% exclude fetal anomalies. So studies have shown that different anomalies detected on ultrasound, there's really a wide range of sensitivity in detecting major and minor malformations, about 40%. Studies have actually shown that there's a really wide range of sensitivities in terms of detecting major and minor anomalies, usually about 40% sensitivity. And this is Because certain systems are easier to detect anomalies than others. For example, the central nervous system and the urinary tract, it's easier to see things like hydrocephaly than sometimes in the heart and the great vessels. Different views can be quite tricky to detect. And this also depends on where you're getting your ultrasound, how much experience your ultrasound tech has with different anomalies and the types of equipment they have on hand as well as the maternal acoustics and habitus. Ultrasound can be really helpful in terms of aneuploidy screening. We know that adding a nuchal translucency result to a high-risk aneuploidy screen can help detect trisomy 21 in up to 70% of cases. And someone with a high-risk aneuploidy screen with a completely normal level 2 can slightly decrease this pretest probability. But again, we know that even with a normal ultrasound, you can't completely exclude the possibility of having an anomaly.
0: Jennifer, we often hear about soft markers for aneuploidy. Speaking of this, can you tell us about some of those or things that we might see that we don't really know about risk one way or another or maybe just limited information about those risks?
2: Absolutely. So different things like a choroid plexus cyst or an echogenic intracardiac focus, CPCs or EIFs, we know that when they're seen in isolated circumstances with a low-risk aneuploidy screening, that these soft markers really aren't associated with having any anomalies down the line. However, if someone were to have a constellation of abnormal findings, like a thickened nuchal fold, hypoplastic nasal bone, cardiac defects, that would really prompt you to discuss obtaining aneuploidy screening with your patients if they've not done so already, because that may influence their decision to have diagnostic testing and other
1: considerations. So I think um, some other questions that we have for you, Jen, too, is You know, what are some things that are important to ultrasound that, you know, we probably can't cover on our podcast? Um, And also, are there any reasons why we shouldn't be doing ultrasounds? Today, we'll not be talking
2: about the physics of ultrasound, mostly because I don't quite understand. (laughs) But in general, when we use our abdominal probe, it's a lower frequency probe that has better penetration, but Lower resolution than different probes like the cardiac probe. And this is helpful because it's a probe that could work on any number of patients, especially patients with bigger habitus, where it would be more helpful in terms of seeing the fetal anatomy despite the maternal acoustic limitations. And then finally, when should you not ultrasound? We all love to ultrasound, it's a really helpful skill to have, but I think for patients who might obtain cosmetic ultrasounds for keepsake purposes at different non-medical centers. The two major concerns are, one, there's a radiologic principle of ALARA, which stands for as low as reasonably achievable, because even though ultrasounds are very safe, we don't know if there's a level above which there might be detrimental effects to the fetus, so to not recommend cosmetic or keepsake ultrasounds to your patients. And then separately, if at one of these centers, a patient were to have a new anomaly diagnosed, it would be really hard to counsel the patient on with the significance of this finding.
0: Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. Um, Faye, let's try and summarize really quickly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about a few things with regards to obstetric ultrasound today. First, we talked about the different types of ultrasound and the nomenclature that has been endorsed by various governing bodies. So these include the limited ultrasounds, which are used for a specific purpose, So, for example, assessing presentation when someone comes in labor. There's the standard ultrasound, uh, which is our level one ultrasound that looks at things like fetal presentation and number, amniotic fluid volume, fetal heart rate, placental location, as well as fetal biometry or anatomic survey, and also a survey of the cervix and end when possible. And finally, there's the specialized or level two ultrasounds, which um, are more detailed, and where these ultrasounds are used to look for specific anomalies or concern for anomalies, um, and also other specific ultrasounds looking at things like fetal Dopplers, BPPs, or fetal echoes.
0: Jennifer then talked with us about the indications for ultrasound by trimester, so starting with the first trimester again, prior to 14 weeks gestation, transvaginal ultrasound tends to be more helpful. You can evaluate the uterus, cervix, and anexa, and obtain viability dating information and fetal location and choriamnionicity as well. Generally, we use the crown rump length to date the pregnancy in this period as its most accurate. You can also diagnose a failed IUP this way, and we'll have the criteria on our website, but just quickly a mean sac diameter greater than or equal to 25 millimeters without an embryo, a crown rump length greater than or equal to seven millimeters without a fetal heart rate, no embryo with a fetal heart rate present 14 days after visualizing a gestational sac, or no embryo with a fetal heart rate 11 days after visualizing a gestational sac that has a yolk sac as well. May need follow-up ultrasounds beyond this to determine viability. You can also use a first trimester ultrasound for aneuploidy screening using a nuchal translucency technique.
1: In terms of second trimester ultrasounds, these are usually transabdominal ultrasounds, um, and we usually use them to do anatomy scans or also to look at the placenta to evaluate whether or not you have a placenta previa or a low-lying placenta. So just to review certain things about the fetal anatomy scan, you should be looking specifically at the head, face, and neck the chest specifically at the heart, the abdomen, the spine, extremities, and also looking at the fetal sex when appropriate. Second trimester ultrasound can also be used to look at multiple gestation to document chorionicity, amnioticity, as well as comparing fetal size or percent discordance.
0: Finally, in talking about the third trimester, most commonly these are growth ultrasounds that can be used for a variety of indications. Growth ultrasounds generally are performed about every three to four weeks, and we know that these ultrasounds are probably the least accurate in determining size, about 20% difference. The most common way to estimate a fetal weight is with the Hadlock formula, which requires three ultrasound views but four measurements, a biparietal diameter, a head circumference, a femur length, and an abdominal circumference. And we'll post pictures of ideal images on the website for you to view, so that way you can kind of get that technique down. Again, you can diagnose growth restriction, which would then prompt you to do specialized ultrasound in the third trimester, um, like a BPP or fetal umbilical artery dopplers. You can measure for macrosomia. You can also evaluate amniotic fluid volume that may be a consequence of various pathologies in the third trimester.
1: With regards to how good ultrasounds are, it is important to counsel patients that ultrasounds have a wide range of sensitivity detecting anomalies, um, and this can range anywhere from 15 to 80% sensitivity, depending on minor versus major malformations, simply because certain parts of the fetal anatomy are easier to survey compared to others. It is important to counsel patients that a normal ultrasound, while reassuring, is not a guarantee of a completely normal fetus.
0: Finally, we left with a couple of things that we weren't talking about today, which include the physics of ultrasound. We'll have to come back to that another time, I guess, when we have a physicist on the podcast. Um, And then times not to use ultrasound, again, re-reviewing that ALARA principle, the as-low as reasonably achievable, like we talked about in our radiology episode.
1: All right, Jen. Thank you again for coming onto our podcast and sharing with us your knowledge. This was a really great episode for us.
0: As we talk about all the time, we don't know anything about ultrasound. So it's helpful to have somebody on who does know a little bit more.
1: Definitely. The OBG project, I believe, has a great ultrasound atlas. It certainly does. (laughs) All right, Nick. So I think this brings us to the end of our podcast. Once again, I'm Faye. I'm Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
0: So guys, if you liked today's episode, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review.
1: You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook at Creogs over Coffee, on Instagram at Creogs over Coffee. and if you're an especially big fan of our show, go ahead and go into our Patreon to give us some love, www.patreon.com slash coffee. If
0: you want to check out images for ultrasounds, that way you know the pictures that you're supposed to be getting. More information about ultrasound or information about any of our other podcast episodes, head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com.
1: Have a question for us or any corrections with this show or any other show? Send us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.